Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. What do you need to know in the Commonwealth of Virginia to better serve and strengthen your communities? This is episode 83, and today we're talking about a new case from the Virginia Supreme Court where the Supreme Court ruled on a jury verdict finding police officers liable in a case where officers shot and killed a man during a struggle during a response to a mental health call uh, in Virginia Beach in 2019. And this case is really interesting for a lot of reasons. Uh, Number one, the Virginia Supreme Court very rarely rules on police use of force cases at all in criminal or civil cases. And this case, I think, will be very important in years to come for police officers and also really in any case of self-defense because the Virginia Supreme Court sets forth the standards for self-defense in a clear way in this ruling. It's also interesting. It's also an interesting case because it's such a divided case. It's a four to three ruling from the Virginia Supreme Court as well. So, what is this case all about? Well, it's a case about an incident that took place again in 2019 in Virginia Beach. Police responded to a call for a man who was in severe mental distress. He had, um, although apparently been relatively functional for a long time, uh, he became his behavior became very erratic uh very irrational he was having these very very angry outbursts all of a sudden over the course of several days and uh, at some point he actually ends up uh, bumping and knocking over uh, one of his family members who calls the police for help police respond very quickly and about 10 or 15 officers show up at the scene they quickly create a perimeter and when they get there, they've discovered that the uh, this gentleman, Mr. Tyree, has armed himself with a large uh, sort of military-style knife with a six-inch blade. And he's threatening to kill himself. And he's saying, you know, stay away from me. Don't come in. I'm going to kill myself. And they try to calm him down. They try to calm him down over several hours. Uh, they get a negotiator on the scene. The negotiator tries to, you know, coach him through and get him to kind of uh, get him to kind of relax. And at various times during the incident, they they do succeed in getting him to to calm down a little bit, but he's definitely angry, he's definitely agitated, and he still has suicidal ideation. The whole goal here, though, is to get him to see, to get help, to get uh, get treatment. They're trying to get him to surrender the knife so he can go get treated. But at some point, things start to get more agitated. He tells the police repeatedly that this is only going to end one of two ways. I'm going to slit my throat and you guys are going to watch me bleed out or I'm going to charge at an officer and force you to shoot me. And he says he doesn't want to hurt the officers, but he says he would make them, he would hurt them or make them hurt him if that's what he had to do. And so he becomes increasingly agitated and the police become concerned that this is going to end badly. So they put together a plan And the plan basically is they're going to coax him into putting the knife down in exchange for getting some cigarettes. And then at that point, they would signal for an officer to uh, shoot Mr. Tyree with a sage gun. If you don't know what a sage gun is, your department doesn't have one. It's basically a a device that shoots uh, rubber bullets. After the sage shot, then at that point, a rapid action team would come in and safely take him into custody. That's the plan. Um, so he's going to get hit with this rubber bullet first, which will stun him, and then an officer will rush in and tackle him. And, and, and of course, at that point, he won't have the knife in his hand and everything will be okay. That's the plan. 
While they offer him the cigarettes, he puts the knife down. But before anybody can hit him with the sage gun, another officer rushes in and tackles him, and a struggle begins. Now, when the other officer rushes in, at this point, Tyree hasn't been hit with the sage gun. He's still up. He's still walking around. So before the officer is able to tackle him, Tyree gets back to his knife and picks his knife up again. So now when this officer has tackled him, he's on the ground with Mr. Tyree, and uh, Mr. Tyree has his knife. The other officer starts to roll away, but at that point, Mr. Tyree has a knife and raises the knife up in the air. And when one of the negotiators sees Mr. Tyree has the knife up in the air in front of this officer who is uh, he's on the ground with, uh, that officer shoots Mr. Tyree one time, and that ultimately kills Mr. Tyree. Um, Mr. <clears throat> the case goes to trial and in uh, Virginia Beach, and the uh, the two things that the plaintiff claims in this case uh, are that the police were negligent, they were grossly negligent, and that also that the officers battered, uh, unlawfully shot Mr. Tyree. Now, the jury rejects the negligence claim. They find that the police are not negligent in this case, but they do find that the shooting itself is unlawful or was unjustified, and they award a million dollars to the Tyree family. And the police appeal the case to the Virginia Supreme Court. So that's where the case stands at this point. It goes to the Virginia Supreme Court, and then the Supreme Court obviously issues its ruling on Thursday, which we'll get to in a moment. But I want to stop for a second and talk about what the law is. Uh, because at this point, I think it's a good chance for us to kind of step back and say, all right, well, what are the rules? What does the law say about police use of force in this context? And it's worth talking about the history of police use of force in uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia, because this is not a lawsuit under federal law. This is not a lawsuit under 42 U.S.C. 1983. And so many times, I think in so many of the lawsuits that we see all over the United States and in Virginia, we're always applying federal law. We're always talking about, oh, are police, is there, you know, is there a, a, a violation of civil rights? Is there qualified immunity? All that stuff does not come into play here because, as I said, the lawsuit was for battery under Virginia law. So none of that federal law comes in. None of the law about 1983 comes in. No qualified immunity comes in. None of that stuff comes in because this is a lawsuit under state law, Virginia law. And the allegation is the, uh, the police unlawfully battered, shot Mr. Tyree. And in Virginia, the rule used to be, you know, back, you know, 100, over 100 years ago, uh, and this is actually from a book called Minor on Crime, Crimes and Punishments. Minor is a famous legal jurist in Virginia. And the rule used to be uh, in the 1800s, in the 1700s, that if there be a warrant, indictment, hue and cry, or an escape, an officer is justified in killing if the accused resists or flies, whether he is guilty or innocent, and whether a felony has been committed or not. And so without a warrant, unjustifiable suspicion founded in his own knowledge or the information of others. So in the 19th century, in the 1800s, the rule was if somebody runs from law enforcement, uh, law enforcement was justified in shooting and killing that person. And that was the rule, you know, up until the, the Virginia Supreme Court sort of speaks about this rule in a case in the 1930s involving a police use of force, but says, you know, that was the rule in the old days, back in the, you know, bad old days in the 1900s, uh, of the 1800s and the 19th century. But that's not the modern rule in the 20th century. <clears throat> in the 20th century, 
There's a case called Hendricks versus Commonwealth, and Hendricks concerns an officer who is chasing a fleeing suspect for a stolen car. Uh, this person has stolen a car, and the officer is chasing after him. He shoots up in the air at one point and says, stop, police, stop. And the um, individual says not stop running, so he chases him through a bunch of backyards and finally shoots this person in the back after they jump over a fence trying to run away. And this officer is charged with murder, and the case he's convicted by a jury, and the case goes to the Virginia Supreme Court. Now, this case isn't a case from uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. This is a case from 1935. And interestingly, it's a case from just across the water from Virginia Beach. It's a case from Norfolk. And so the officers in this case were tried for murder and ultimately found guilty of involuntary manslaughter by the jury. So in this case, the Virginia Supreme Court has to rule on whether or not the sort of old rule that if somebody is running away from you on a felony offense, and this was a felony offense in this case, you could shoot them in the back and kill them. And well before Tennessee versus Garner in the 1980s, well before the U.S. Supreme Court rules that there has to be a, a, a threat of death or serious bodily injury for law enforcement officers to use deadly force, the Virginia Supreme Court in 1935 rules that an officer is not justified in killing a suspected fleeing felon from arrest unless there is a necessity for it. And the existence of such necessity on the facts in that case was a question to be ter- determined by the jury. So in 1935, the Virginia Supreme Court sets the standard that whether you're, the person is running away or not, <clears throat> the standard is always there has to be a necessity to use deadly force. And at the same time, the Virginia Supreme Court makes clear that the law in Virginia of self-defense is the law of necessity. So in other words, law enforcement, if they're going to use deadly force, has to be using it essentially in self-defense or the defense of somebody else against a threat of death or serious bodily injury. And so, sure, officers can rely on self-defense for themselves if they're in a struggle with another person. And so, in the case of McReynolds versus Commonwealth, which is a 1941 case, in McReynolds, officers arrest a man for drunk in public, and during the course of the arrest, they um, strike him, he starts to struggle, he tries to try to escape, and the officer in a struggle with him shoots him and kills him, and testifies at trial. I was in fear for my life, and so that's why I shot him. Well, in the, in, the, in the evidence in the case was the individual wasn't really drunk in public at all. They had some grudge against him. They didn't like him. They knew him to be a bootlegger. Uh, and so they pulled him out of the car, even though he wasn't intoxicated, arrested him without evidence of intoxication. Then they get into this struggle with him. And the court in this case rules, uh, and he's convicted at trial, the court rules if a deadly confrontation is the result of a law enforcement officer's unlawful arrest, then the officer cannot rely on self-defense. If the person who he shoots and kills resists and, 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 uh, and assaults the officer, it's brought about by the officer's own misconduct and the officer cannot rely on self-defense. So already in 1941, you see the Virginia Supreme Court setting strict standards for self-defense. And in Virginia, we have two kinds of self-defense, right? We have self-defense with fault and self-defense without fault. Self-defense without fault, that is to say, pure self-defense or perfect self-defense, is a defense that you bring when you didn't cause the fight to happen, but you fear death or serious bodily injury. In that situation, you don't have any obligation to retreat. You can use reasonable force 
to uh, defend yourself against the threat. It's an affirmative defense. You, it has to be brought up by the person who's being charged or being sued. Um, but that's distinct from a situation where you might cause the fight. You go into a bar, you don't like the way somebody's talking, you punch them in the face, you start <clears throat> fighting with this person, and then during the course of the fight, that person pulls a knife. Now, you punched the person, you brought about the fight, now they've escalated to using deadly force. Can you use deadly force in response? You can certainly use non-deadly force in response, but can you use deadly force in response? Well, if you're at fault for bringing on the fight, that's where you have a duty to retreat. You have to retreat as far as possible, announce your desire for peace, and then and only then, if you continue to face the threat of death or serious bodily injury, can you use deadly force. So if the accused, whether they're a police officer or not, is, is, is at fault for creating the difficulty leading to the murder, the killing is not justifiable. So either way, self-defense is a claim of necessity, right? And so uh, if an officer shoots somebody, kills that person in Virginia, under Virginia law, if they're going to defend against the charge of battery, whether it's a criminal charge or a civil charge, they have to demonstrate that the deadly force was necessary. And so you have to show a reasonable belief that the action, the, mur the, the use of deadly force was necessary to avoid the imminent threat and harm and, uh, <clears throat> and that the use of force was reasonable. And that's the issue, for example, that comes up, the struggle that comes up in the Rankin versus Commonwealth case, which I've talked about before. The Rankin versus Commonwealth case was a case uh, from Portsmouth where an officer goes to arrest somebody for shoplifting. The person resists. The officer draws his taser to try to restrain the person. The person knocks the officer's taser out of his hand. They get into a hand-to-hand -hand struggle. The officer then shoots the individual and kills him. And he was tried, Mr. Rankin was tried in Portsmouth, so again in Tidewater, uh, and convicted for convicted of voluntary manslaughter. In that case, the Court of Appeals really sort of struggled with, is that pure self-defense? Or is that sort of imperfect self-defense where the officer is at fault for bringing on the difficulty? They don't really ever answer that question. And then the case goes to the Virginia Supreme Court, who rules on a different issue. And so the whole issue never really gets addressed. But it's an issue that's out there in Virginia law, right? What is the officer's authority to use self-defense? And how do you, under Virginia law, if you're being sued for battery or tried for battery, how do you decide whether the officer lawfully used self-defense? Well, the last time that the courts in Virginia really addressed it, other than the, the Rankin case, which obviously didn't end up in a, a ruling that gave us any real law, uh, was a case called Couture versus Commonwealth. And that was a case from the city of Richmond in 2008. And what happens in Couture versus Commonwealth, again, this is a conviction of a police officer for manslaughter in, in a case where an officer killed an individual. Uh, this case was one where... Uh, Couture, who was a Richmond police officer, was out on patrol. They stop a vehicle for running a stop sign. During the course of the stop, officers walk up to the vehicle and they see the driver reach between his knees underneath the seat. Now, he's the only person in the car. They both fear that the driver might be armed. So Officer Couture says, keep your hands in the steering wheel, buddy. Uh, you know, Show me your driver's license, show your registration. He's very nervous and he gets a warning from his partner that seems to indicate, hey, look out for this guy, uh, you know, get him out of the car, get him out of the car, get him out of the car. And so Officer Couture says, I think this guy might be armed based on what my buddy is telling me. So with the, they, the Couture offers the driver's side door 
and reaches in, tries to get him out, grabs, his, uh, grabs the driver's arm using an armbar technique, tries to get him out of the car, orders him out of the car. The driver tries to get out of the car, but he's still wearing a seatbelt, so he can't. So then Couture reaches over to unbuckle the seatbelt. At that point, the driver grabs the officer's shirt, shirt and the vehicle starts to move. And at that point, he says, stop the car, stop the car. He starts running with the vehicle. Um, he ends up falling on top of the driver. So now the vehicle is moving. He's fallen on top of him. And he's, uh, at this point, the officer, you know, panics uh, by his own testimony, panics and says, I, w I decided I was going to have to use that le lethal force to end this without me being killed or Mr. Couture being, uh, the driver being killed. So Couture drives his gun. The driver says, don't. And Couture shoots and kills him. Now, Interestingly, in this case, the driver did have a gun underneath the seat. So Couture wasn't wrong. There was a firearm in the car. And in fact, it appears that at some points during the stop, the driver was trying to reach and pull that gun out. He never did get his hands on the gun. And at the moment that he shoots and kills the driver, the driver doesn't have the gun or isn't reaching for the gun. Uh, Couture himself admits he never sees a weapon in the vehicle. And when he shoots the driver, the driver is saying don't, and the driver has his hands up. Uh, and he does testify, and, and the officer himself says, yeah, the driver had his hands up and was saying don't uh, when Couture shot him. So there definitely was a gun in the car. But again, the issue was, was there necessity? There was certainly a perception of danger on the part of the, of the officer. There's no question that he perceived danger, that he believed he had to use deadly force. During the trial, the jury actually sends out a question. And the question they say is, does self-defense still apply if the officer is largely responsible for creating the perception of danger? And here, the, um, the jury, this, you know, there's a sort of struggle about what the answer should be. The Court of Appeals says, you know, the real answer to that question is, is it depends. It you you cannot use excessive deadly force, right? The force you use has to be reasonable in relation to the perceived threat. So if you as an officer are responsible for creating the perception of danger, as the jury puts it, then you wouldn't be able to use deadly force because that deadly force wouldn't be reasonable. On the other hand, if the officer... Uh, the officer's actions didn't make his use of force unreasonable. In other words, he, the officer did took actions that were reasonable under the circumstances. Uh, then the court says, yeah, then he would still be able to use deadly force even though he brought on the threat because his actions during the course of the stop were reasonable. Everything he did under the law was reasonable, and so he's permitted to use self-defense to defend himself. Which is interesting, right? Because it's a little different there, you know, because again, officers are expected in some ways to bring on threats. They're expected to stop people in the street and put them in handcuffs and take them out of cars and take them into custody and so on. All things that, you know, normally people aren't supposed to do, right? Put their hands on other people. But officers are expected to do that. They're demanded to do that under the law. But here again, the, the officer's perception of danger has to be, uh, basically in the court's eyes, doesn't give the officer the authority to use deadly force. It has to be reasonable for the officer to use deadly force under the circumstances. And in this court, in this case, the court agrees with the jury and says uh, it was not reasonable. Certainly the officer's actions, while motivated by non-malicious fear, uh, he, he used deadly force disproportionate to any reasonable apprehension of harm. 
office at the time that he shot this individual uh the driver was not didn't have a weapon he didn't appear to be wrenching for a weapon he was saying don't he had both of his hands up uh, the uh, the stop was for a traffic violation for running a stop sign and so the jury rationally concluded in the eyes of the court that while understandably frightening, the movement of the vehicle and the officer's attempt to stop it produced an insufficiently grave risk of harm to warrant the use of deadly force. And the court here again quotes a case from 1941, the right to use deadly force in self-defense begins where the necessity begins and ends where the necessity ends. So again, the law of self-defense is a law of necessity in the eyes of the court. Which brings us back to the Virginia Supreme Court's ruling on Thursday in this uh, case uh, involving the <clears throat> shooting in Virginia Beach. So the officer here in this case is facing an individual who's got this military-style knife, who's angry and agitated, has said that he's going to either uh, kill himself or make the police kill him by attacking them. And his, this individual now is in a struggle with another officer on the ground. And the other officer has run up, tackled him. Mr. Tyrese picked up this knife. They're on the ground. Mr. Tyrese raised his arm, his hand up in the air. And all this is happening in about two seconds. So about two seconds from the tackle to the officer's decision to pull the trigger and shoot Mr. Tyree. And in this case, uh, the court says, you know, look, he's on the ground. They're both on the ground. The, uh, Mr. Tyree is profoundly disturbed. He's potentially dangerous. And he's lifted the knife in a way that the knife might be employed to stab the officer. And so the court says that the evidence establishes that the officer faced an immediate and potentially mortal danger to a fellow officer, and therefore he was justified in taking a single shot in defense of his fellow officer. The, quote, the court here writes, In the immediacy of that moment, the officer was not required to wait and see whether Mr. Tyree might plunge the knife into the other officer's heart or neck, or whether something else might happen. The court here goes back and again examines this law of self-defense and says self-defense turns on the right to respond to an overt act that creates an imminent danger. Now, with respect to did the officers create this situation, did they put themselves in this situation, the court here says what was said and done before this imminent danger may be relevant background, but it's not dispositive on the question of self-defense. So again, did the officer you know, make the situation work? Well, worse Well, by running in and tackling him? Well, the court here says the plea of self-defense is a plea of necessity, and the necessity must be shown to exist, or there must be such reasonable apprehension of immediate danger uh, by some overt act as to amount to the creation of the necessity. But that necessity arises right there at that moment. And so in the eyes of the court, the decision to fire his weapon on these facts constituted a defense as a matter of law, and so the court reverses the judgment against the officers and essentially dismisses the lawsuit. That's it. There's no more lawsuit. The judgment is, is final. So this is a four to three ruling from the Virginia Supreme Court. So four justices voted to dismiss it. Three justices dissented. And those justices disagreed with the conclusion. They said we, they should trust the, the decision of the jury and found that the, uh, should, the, the, the Virginia Supreme Court should have allowed the jury verdict to stand. The other thing I would say, though, that's interesting about this case is this is a case from 2019. And so it this is a case that was decided before the 2020 changes to the Virginia Code were enacted by the General Assembly. And I think it's interesting to kind of step back and say, hey, what about 
the changes that were enacted in the special session in 2020, would those have changed the result in this case? Well, to start with, note that, they sh that the plan was to shoot Mr. Tyree with a SAGE gun. And in 2020, the General Assembly enacted 19.2-83.4, which prohibits the use of kinetic impact munitions by a law enforcement officer unless it's necessary to protect a law enforcement officer or another person from bodily injury. And that includes, uh, you know, plastic uh, bullets or plastic rounds, like from a SAGE gun. But in this case, certainly there is a danger to another person, uh, specifically to Mr. Tyree. Now, the code section here says protect a law enforcement officer or another person from bodily injury. Who can that other person be Mr. Tyree himself? Well, in a moment, we're going to talk about the other change to the Virginia Code from 2020, which is a change to 19.283.5. And that says, that talks about uh, using deadly force to protect the officer or another person, comma, other than the subject of the use of deadly force. They don't say here in, in this case, in this instance on kinetic impact munitions, other than the person against whom the kinetic impact munitions are being used. So when the General Assembly uses language in one place but not in another, the courts generally say, well, that means something. It means that they probably meant you could use uh, kinetic impact munitions to protect someone from themselves. And that was the plan, was to hit Mr. Tyree with a sage gun to protect him from himself. Now, that doesn't happen because they don't end up doing that. But I think that's the first question to ask. The second question to ask is, what would be the role of 19.283.5, the new code section that regulates the use of deadly force by a law enforcement officer? So in this case, under 19.283.5, the officers would have had to show that the officers reasonably believe that deadly force was immediately necessary to protect the law enforcement officer for, or, or, or another person other than the subject of the use of deadly force from the threat of serious bodily injury or death. Well, you certainly have that in, that case, in this case, right? Uh, the officer here in this case uh, believed that he had to use deadly force in defense of another person. And that's the law of self-defense, right? That's the basic law of self-defense that's been around for over 100 years in Virginia. If feasible, the law enforcement officer has provided a warning to the subject of deadly force that he will use deadly force. Well, again, you know, we, talk, we saw talk of warnings in the Hendricks case in the 1930s. Uh, here, it was a two-second, you know, two seconds. They're on the ground. Tyree raises the knife. It's not feasible to provide a warning, I think, in that case, and that doesn't become an issue. All other options have been exhausted or do not reasonably lend themselves to circumstances. That's another requirement of 83.5. Uh, well, here, again, if somebody's raising up a knife to stab you, if there's an imminent stabbing, which is what the Virginia Supreme Court finds, I don't know that there is many other options at that point. What other options do you have? A sage gun's not going to stop someone from stabbing someone. A taser isn't, you know, I don't know. You'd have to be able to articulate that there were no other options and circumstances. And then the court would have to look at the totality of the circumstances, uh, the five totality of circumstances, the amount of time available, whether the person appeared to have a deadly weapon, uh, number three, did the officers engage in de-escalation measures? Number four, did they intentionally in increase the risk of a confrontation? And number five, the seriousness of the crime. And here I think it's interesting to look at that. You know, number one, how much time was there available? Uh, basically one to two seconds. So not a lot of time to make a decision. Two, did he have a deadly weapon? Absolutely. He had a knife. It's well documented. Number three, did they engage in de-escalation de measures? For like two and a half hours they did, yeah. In this case, they spent two and a half hours engaging in de-escalation measures. So, so far under 19.283.5, the new code section enacted in 2020, the officers, is all on, it's all sort of on the officer's side of the, um, side of the balance sheet. But when you look at number four and five, uh, number five is seriousness of the suspected crime, and Tyree hasn't committed a crime at all. He's just trying to, he wants to hurt himself. He wants to kill himself. 
you know, maybe he's brandishing a knife. I don't know. You could say he's brandishing a knife. But at that point, you know, up until the point that he raises the knife in the air, which would be assault on law enforcement officer, he hasn't really committed any kind of crime. And then number four, did any conduct by the law enforcement officer prior to the use of deadly force intentionally increase the risk of a confrontation resulting in deadly force being used? Well, in a lot of ways, that factor which the General Assembly put into 19.283.5 takes us right back to Couture versus Commonwealth in that case back in 2008 where the officer is found guilty of manslaughter, where the officer you know, grabs Mr. Couture and ends up uh, in the vehicle, the vehicle's moving, and the court is, and the jury asks that question, to what extent are we supposed to weigh the officer's own actions uh, again, and the way the officer themselves put themselves in a situation where they then have to use deadly force. And here we just don't really have a lot of guidance from the courts. We don't have a lot of guidance from the law. I mean, the Couture case basically said, well, if the officer's actions were reasonable under the circumstances, then it's okay for the officer to use deadly force. If the officer's actions are not reasonable, then yeah, if the officer's responsible in bringing on the threat, uh, and that's like in the McReynolds case from 1941, where the officers unlawfully arrest somebody, uh, unlawfully strike him while they're arresting him for drunken public, and then when he struggles to get free, they shoot him in fear of their lives, and the court says, well, you can't rely on self-defense when you your own unlawful actions created this situation, uh, the question is, how do you evaluate whether the officer's actions were reasonable or unreasonable, lawful or unlawful? Is that the jury's job? Is it the judge's job? We don't really know how a court would unravel that. The case from Virginia Beach is very clear in its finding that in the law as it stood in 2019, the law was that you that what the officers did beforehand was you know, it was certainly interesting, uh, but it doesn't really determine whether or not an officer can use deadly force to protect himself or somebody else from getting stabbed or killed. So it still kind of remains to be seen, I think, how courts are going to apply this new code section that was enacted, this 19.283.5 code section. And the case from Thursday doesn't give us a clear answer, uh, but it does certainly come out very strong in favor of law enforcement officers being permitted to use deadly force in self-defense when facing an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury. So it's an interesting case. Uh, we'll have to stay tuned. Uh, these cases don't come out very much, uh, and uh, we have to take what we've got and sort of read into them uh, and do the best we can. But I hope you found today interesting. If you like the podcast, tell your friends. We're on SoundCloud, Stitcher Podcast, iTunes. Uh, if you want to be on another app, let me know. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. For today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured.